how can I take my local business directory, the little blue book, and turn that into something that's more robust? I had been involved in drugs. I had sold drugs. God gives us what we need, not what we want. And sometimes the challenges we face in life are there because we need to understand we can't control it. If money becomes your ruler such that it determines every action, every decision, then it's probably a bad thing. And there is something within the Christian environment in the UK where there is a culture that if you are a Christian, you shouldn't be successful. No one was doing reviews that I could find. If anybody proves me wrong, I'll stop saying it. <laughs> You're building this out of your shed at this point? Yeah, I'm, I'm at the bottom of my garden. And this is what he said. God has given you the ability to make wealth. Just give them your business and start again. Wow. So that's what I did. Welcome back to another episode of Success is a System. We're really honoured today to get some time with Kevin Byrne, founder of Checker Trade, literally built from his shed into a business worth tens of millions of pounds. And we'll find out about that. But really, it's about understanding the process, the behaviours, the ups, the downs. How did Kevin build that business and what systems and approaches and behaviours can he share with us that might help you build your business? So thank you so much for allowing us into your home, Kevin. Um, this is the... The temporary home, because you're building a how many square foot house at the moment? Uh, it's too big. Too big. <laughs> it's 22,000 square feet, Fantastic. which sounded like a good idea when we saw the plans. But now we've now we're sort of uh, well into the build. It's like, why did we go so big? But lovely, because I think all of our stately homes and big grand country houses are all historic. It's nice to see some that are being built now of that size that people will look at in the future and that will become their dream home and we all want dreams of what we might achieve one day and, and uh, where we might live. Uh, and Indeed. certainly I'm sure you would never have dreamed that at some point. But, you know, Tell us about, Kevin, the, the young lad and hopes and dreams and ambitions. Where, where, oh, where did it all wow. start? Okay. Um, well, picture this and I'm sure you'd know this child. <laughs> okay. A red-headed child, little bit overweight, being dragged to the school gate by their mum, screaming, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. Being handed over to the teacher. That that was me. Um, I, I come from, yeah, everyone's got their story, so this is certainly not a hard luck story, but it's my story. Um, I was born into a family where my dad was a military policeman, fairly tough guy. Uh, and my mum was a seamstress, so there was nothing grand or uh, in that arena. But my mum had three three kids in three years. Her womb collapsed. She had some surgery and was told, you don't need contraception because you can't have any more kids. Nine years go by and she goes to the doctor with a bloated stomach and it's me. And she would tell me, she's passed away now, but she would tell me that, Kev, I didn't want you. And you think, oh, okay, mum, that's fine. But I had a great relationship with my mum at that point. But Kev, I really didn't want you, you know, and I only came to terms with being pregnant after many months. And then I came to terms with it because you were going to be called Alison. <laughs> and obviously Alison didn't appear. So she said that was a big disappointment again. And it was like, oh, wow, what a great start to her life, eh? But did, did that lead to any... Loss of love in those early years? Did you ever feel that you yeah. were in the way? Not, you know? not with my mum, 
My, my dad's job took us all over the world because he was in the forces. So I went to many, many different schools, uh, RAF schools. I don't know how many schools I went to, but uh, I, I had bright red hair, which wasn't a good thing. And I also had a, sev- a severe stammer, and I still have it a little bit, but not much. Um, but uh, so I'd go into a new school, bright red, a little bit overweight, and the kids would say, well, what's your name? And you can't even get your name out of your mouth because my stamina was so bad. So I got to a point where what is the point of making friends? Because in six months, I could be in another school. And my brothers and sisters, you know, by the time when I was at school age, they were teenagers. So you start becoming so kind they of self-isolated, really, do you? Yeah, very much so. The, my brothers and sisters, although they loved me, I, I'd assume, especially my sister, um, they weren't really part of my life because, and I were, guess at their age, that with the age difference, you were then taking all mom and dad's time because you were little. And- maybe, maybe that's from their side of it. I've never really looked at it from their side, but uh, my dad was pretty tough, and they all left home at a fairly young age. Right. But my dad had a had an operation when I was ten. Um, it was done by the RAF, and sadly, the anaesthetist was negligent and pumped him with enough anaesthetic to put him into a coma for 10 days. And he was in a coma for 10 days. And we were told as a family, uh, we don't know what state he will be if he if he comes out of the coma. He could be a vegetable. Uh, he did come out, but he lost 20 years of his memory. Okay. So when he, came, when he came round and I was only 10... You didn't exist. I didn't exist. My dad didn't recognise me. I don't think he ever called me son again. Cool. Um, and my brothers and sisters at that point had all left home. How does that feel, though? Because parents' love is important. Oh, huge. Massive to me. So my eldest brother almost took... Uh, he didn't take the father role, but it, but someone had to replace... a father figure, kind of. That thing. father figure. And who do I want to be proud of me? Well, it's got to be my oldest brother. Yeah. Yeah. Does that change the parent that you are? Um, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that question before. In- inevitably, everyone's childhood shapes what they are as an adult. How has that shaped me? Um, my my overwhelming desire for my children, and I've got four daughters and a stepson, ha- uh, has always been and still is, I don't want you to have to work as hard as I did. I want you to have a better life mm. than what I had. Yeah. So we're the same age, 60 next year. Big one. <laughs> I, I, my step, uh, my dad went when I was four, so I don't really have any memories. I met him a couple of times when I was 24. Um, and I realized blood's not thicker than water. It's who he brings you up a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, which is probably how your stepson feels, I assume, because we, even though my stepdad was a violent man, a Richardson, um, and go to place was violence, and I was uh, the target of some of that. I felt more loved or valued in a way, strange way, mm-hmm. uh, even though the violence was part of it, than I ever did by the dad who left, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't hear the word love much from the father side of my family. My mom was yeah. incredible. You know, she would literally go without food for us and everything else. But from that father figure, and we do need that. I mean, does that make you use the word love more than you might have heard it? Or, you know, because I, I think this, the, the, some of these emotionally connected elements in a child's life 
are foundational to how they grow up. I, think. I, I, I make a point of telling my daughters I love them and I make a point of sending them messages of how much I love them and what they mean to me. And that's really important. So, you know, and I think sometimes we get caught up in business, especially in the busyness of business. Mm. And we're doing it for all the right reasons for our family. But often it's the small words and gestures and messages that, yeah. that make a difference. But I want to go back to the stammer because the first time we met um, was at one of Joe Valenti's events. And yeah. you were in front of a bunch of a big group of people and you speak very eloquently and confidently. I'd have never known you had a stammer. What what yeah. What caused that and how... Have you developed to the point that it doesn't affect you? When I was very young, I think it was around the age of three or four, we lived in Singapore. And in Singapore, you have monsoons, you have monsoon rains. And uh, my uh, sister would tell me, you're on your tricycle, Kev, and you're, tricycle, you're, you're running along and it's been raining hard. It's not raining at that point, but the monsoon drains are whoosh, with water going through them, and you fell in, you banged your head, and now you're being swept away in this drain. Um, and your dad and one of your brothers pelted after you, uh, you know, finally dragged you out of this, and you were unconscious. And um, when I came round, I had this stammer. Huh? So whether that was the knock on the head, and I've still got a slight scar from it, or, or whether it was an extreme event that caused the stammer, I don't know. But I had speech therapy till I was 12. And if you were speaking to someone else who was dealing with that, what was the key part of that therapy that helped? Um, complicate sentences when you know a word is not going to come out. Make them more complicated? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, for example, if someone would say to me as a young child, what's your name? I couldn't just say Kevin. I'd have to say my mum and dad decided to call me Kevin. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And we, we cut shorts of these things. It becomes really powerful for yeah. people. And I never know where this is going to go, but that, that in itself, because that changes your confidence. It changes everything when you can start to take control of different parts of your life. And I realize a lot of mental health issues uh, with one of my own daughters had uh, an eating disorder. <laughs> and you think they're just not eating enough. They must be because they want to be skinny or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And often it's not that. And in the case of eating disorders, it's all about control. If they don't feel in control because they're at a tough school or got strict parents or whatever it is, yeah. the one thing they can completely control is their body. And uh, and often these eating disorders are about control, taking control, having control, being in control. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can start to realize that you can be safe without having to have that level of control or that, you know, it's not – it it, it – you are in control without being controlling. Mm -hmm. uh, it can change people's lives. Uh, and as a behavioural profiler, I, I think that's really fascinating. Well, with four daughters, I've seen that. <laughs> they know everything <laughs> by the age of 11, don't they? But, uh, no, I mean, e eating disorders and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. You know, you know, you can't Heart have four daughters and not see something. No, and it's heartbreaking stuff and you can't control it. And then, I mean, yeah. I'm talking about control. I found as a man, I, I can't strategize that. I can't fix that. No, I, I have to just support yeah. and work through that and let that yeah. be what it is. And, and I think often in, uh, um, I'm very passionate about religion, actually. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I say I'm not a religious person, but in my twenties, I studied every religion and I was interested in what the mm. common themes were 
for religion. You know, they all sort of have a, a version of the Ten Commandments, the way we should live our life, the morals and ethics by which we should live our life. And primarily, they're all more good than bad. In fact, they all are good at their base yeah. and they are more common. So I was interested as a behavioral profiler in if you took them back to the earliest possible roots, is it possible they were one religion that evolved through manipulation or politics, if you like? But along the way, uh, one of the things that uh, I picked up was a lot of religious sayings that are metaphors or analogies that can give us a way that we can be or or that can teach us how to live. And, you know, one of them is that God gives us what we need, not what we want. And sometimes the challenges we face in life are there because we need to understand we can't control everything or we need to understand that um, the, the challenges we're dealing with are making us stronger and we can yeah. come out of it even having gone through well, it. Well, religion has played um, a, a significant part in my life <clears throat> and journey, significant. Uh, I, I wouldn't be where I am today without it. I am a Christian. Uh, Jesus is my Lord. And I gave my life to him when my first marriage broke down. And was that because you felt you had a higher power you could connect with? Or was that um, just a kind of blind faith that meant you could yeah. you could relax a little bit, knowing that there was more purpose beyond what you were experiencing? What, what do you think it is? Well, at the age of 23, uh, um, this, is, this is where I was at. Uh, my first <clears throat> marriage had broken down. Um, I was sleeping in my car. I had a, 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 a daughter. Um, I was forced out of the house, even though my wife left me. Um, she actually left me and left me with my daughter. Oh. But, but she, she, she came back and uh, through legal reasons, I had to move out and it became untenable of living there. Um, and I was living in, a, in, in the back of my car. And uh, a middle-aged lady took pity on me and said, you can't sleep in the back of your car. Come and sleep in my, on my kitchen floor. That was intimately more better than, than, the, than the, um, the car. But this is where I found myself. Um, I had been involved in drugs. I had sold drugs. There were people that were on drugs at that particular point still because of me. I had broken up a marriage. Um, and so this poor guy lost, lost his wife because of me. And, uh, that was the lady I married and now she's run off with someone else. And, and I'm, and I'm lying on this kitchen floor thinking <clears throat> I've lost everything. I've lost everything, but I deserve to have lost it. That was my genuine feeling and belief. I deserve what's happening to me because of what I've done in my life at this point. Yeah. And, um, this was, this is what I said. And I, and I was a hatch match and dispatch person, Christian, which means hatch, I'll go to a baptism, match, I'll go to a wedding, dispatch, I'll go to a funeral. That's the only time I'd ever go to, oh, a, right. to a church. I was not really brought up in that way in any way, shape or form. And I'm, and I'm lying on this, um, I'm lying on this, uh, kitchen floor. And I, and I just said, I, I deserve all of this. And I'm praying to a God I didn't believe in. And I said, but if, if you're real, can you make yourself real to me, please? Because I have got no purpose. Everything is gone. There's no, there's, there's no, there's no reason for me to be alive. I wasn't suicidal, but it, but there's just no reason. 
And I've, I probably forgot about that. And um, through uh, bizarre circumstances, which I won't go into now, I ended up at, in, at a Christian meeting literally four or five days later. And there was this guy was talking about healings. And part of my journey up to that point was also very spiritual because I went on a six-month course to become a medium. Right. I did so. <laughs> yeah. And, and I saw some things that nobody really sees. And I became very aware that there was a spiritual realm, but, but with being, but within spiritualism, it, it was definitely not right. It was wrong. It was on the wrong side of it. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> I had that experience, but, but, but as in these meetings where you do have mediums, they will quite often pick on someone. Um, and you get, if you're picked on, you've got the adrenaline going through you because you're in this crowded environment and, and they'll say, what's wrong? Oh, your arm, you raise your arm now. And because of the adrenaline, you can't, oh, you're healed, <laughs> but you're not. The next day that person was in agony again. So I never saw any real positive things in, in spiritualism at all. It was all fake and it was all counterfeit and it was all on the wrong side of good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so when this Christian guy, and I can remember his name was uh, Bishop Bani Chu, and he was from Singapore, he's retired, but he was talking about healings. And I'm going, I've heard all of this before. I've just heard it all before. And then he brought up an x-ray. Oh, yeah, well, so what? And then he says, that person's in the audience today. And this person got up and said, yeah, that was mine. I had a curved spine. Yeah, you know, Bishop Bani Chu prayed for me and it straightened. And you think, what? Is that just more fake? Is that, I mean... What's going on here? It doesn't seem right. Anyway, um, if you know me, well, I don't get into queues. And at the end of the meeting, he closed it down and, and, he, and he says, if anyone wants to talk to me, come up. You know, I'll be at the front for a little while. I'm happy to talk to someone. And I'm hanging on to the side of my chairs and I want to go and talk to this guy. Yeah. And from, from that moment to this moment, I don't actually remember getting out of my chair. But I was the first up. And if I wasn't the first up, I wouldn't have got into a queue. Right. And I start to talk to him and I said, all this healing stuff and blah, 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 blah. And I'm talking, it was a long time ago, so I can't remember the exact detail. But it, but I, I was challenging him on the healing side. And then he said, can I stop you, please? I said, yeah, I've got something to say to you. God is real and he can be real to you and he can bring sense of purpose into your life. And that was like, because of what you'd asked for in terms of the That's way you'd asked what the I prayed four days ago, five days ago. Yeah. And that was just like, how? No, that's, and even now, I get really emotional about it. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Success as a System. Come back every fortnight to hear tips, tricks, and systems to make you the best business person you can be. Visit my website, mikegreen.co.uk for information on my mentorship and follow on all my socials for bite-sized pieces of advice. Thanks very much. Now let's jump back into this week's episode. But that, that's, a, that's a good thing. And, and mm. I, I always want to start with where people come from, what they feel, what they've yeah. experienced, that, that kind of early years. Yeah. Because when you meet people who are successful, it's really easy for people to look at the house, the car, the confidence. Yeah, yeah. And not the history. And well, and not the history, and and, and in in yeah. seeing that and not knowing the history, they may be going through this now. They may mm. 
think you know, it's okay for him. He's probably been to a good school. He's probably had rich parents. He's probably always been confident. <laughs> no, it, I've got no qualifications whatsoever. And I think it's really important that people see that. So yeah. thank you for being so open. But that, um, but that had a major impact on me because at that point he, he could see I was getting emotional and he, and he said, would you like to invite Christ into your life? And there and then I did. And I haven't been the same since. So what, that, what was the biggest transition from that then? Uh, I mean, the, did it did it rebuild you as a person that then let you build a business? Did it, it does. You know, where does it come it, from? It does because you now have a huge sense of someone being with you on a constant basis, or I did. There are some people that think that say they're Christians, but if they haven't been born again, which is what happened to me, are, are they Christians? It's not for me to judge. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. But my experience was dramatic. Um, but that led on to things which were negative. Very, very positive side. On the negative side of it, 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 it led on to how you actually think as an individual because your, your environments and circumstances will shape the way you think. The Word of God says very clearly uh, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And no, no one really understands what that means, really. But that's quite a famous verse. But I, I absolutely know what it means now. And do you know what that verse is, if someone wanted to look it up? Or? Uh, Google it. <laughs> yeah. okay. Say it again then, so we can get... You, can be, you, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But from from then on, I have I really am still bouncing along the bottom of the... Lo- of, of, the barrel. I'm, uh, nothing's really happening for me. I, uh, and I'm starting to go to church, which is great. I'm really enjoying it. And on a spiritual side, it, it's doing me an immense amount of good. And the forgiveness that came to me at that point for what I'd done in my past, it was like a wave upon wave being taken out of me. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And that's, that was revolutionary to me. But, if you walked into the church, or if you looked at the car park, I should say, in most churches in the UK, it would be beat up car, beat up car, moderate car, beat up car, new car. Mm-hmm. If you go to your local Sainsbury's, it's new car, nice car, beat up car, nice car, nice car, new car. And there is something within the Christian environment in the UK and I really believe this strongly, where there is a culture that if you are a Christian, you shouldn't be successful. Yeah. If you're a Christian, you should be meek, mild and humble, bounce along the bottom of life. And if you've got any money, that's wrong. And if you have got money, you should give it to the poor. And I, well, I talk about this a lot in the sense that, you know, my cup overfloweth, but the more it overflows, the more I can give. Well, that's And great. actually, uh, somebody once said to me, because... You know, the old saying about the uh, money's the root of all evil. And they say it doesn't say that in the Bible. They say the love of money is the root of That's all right. evil. If, if money becomes your ruler such that it yeah. determines every action, every decision, then it's probably a bad thing. Yeah. But if you see money as a route towards helping others and fulfilling yourself and others and your community, and you're able to feed the community that feeds you, support the country that supports you, and so on, 100% then it becomes agree. a real tool of benefit. 100%. And- and that is agreed within the church environments. But if I went into the average uh, church in the UK, invited by the pastor, 
And I stood up on front of the stage and I said, I want to be rich, powerful and influential. Everyone would look at the pastor and go, get this guy off stage. And what, how would the pastor feel generally? He would probably feel the same thing. Where, where do you think that mismatch comes from? Because surely, uh, you know, God, whoever someone's God is, would want us all to live in abundance. Would all, you know, he if, does. If that's we, the thing. Yeah, exactly. He does. But there is something that's built into the to the psyche of the church people that it's wrong to be wealthy. So within the church, to one degree or another, people will think it's wrong to to have wealth. Um, some people may have it at this level. Some people it might only be at this level. But it's but it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's there. And and it's surely uh, abundance is is what we should have. Abundance of health, abundance of wealth, abundance of happiness, abundance. Of, because often people say to me, "What is success to you?" And I say, "You know, it's health, wealth, and happiness." If I just had wealth. I know a lot of people who have got millions, but yeah. are, are really unhappy. Yeah. I know a lot of people that have got millions, but their bodies are destroyed because they gave it up achieving those. So surely it's the combination, the cocktail of all of those things. And actually, I know that I've given well over a million pounds to charity, that I've paid huge amounts into tax that has helped a lot of people. I'm sure you've you've done the same. And and that surely if I worked at the lowest possible level where I could hardly support myself, let alone help others, it, it, it's not such a good thing. I, I saw just on social media the other day, Alan Sugar had written a checkout to HMRC in one year for £167 million. Pounds. Now, you could look at him and say, Alan Sugar, he's got loads of money and he's just living off other people. And, you know, that's his tax alone without the philanthropy. Uh, and I, yeah. I do think if we could only kind of open our mind and i was saying this to someone just yesterday i I love the saying that a mind unlike an elastic band once stretched can never regain its original dimensions if we could open people's mind to the fact that the more you have the more you can give the more you have the more you can help if your cup overflows in confidence you can share confidence if your cup overflows in education you can share education if your cup overflows in money you can share money you can do so many great things with that but I don't know where it is, and, and you make a good point. What, where does it come from? Do you think that the church, there's some kind of, uh, they're, they're seen as better people if they're going without, or better people if they're striving. It's, it's, I think I think it's it, it comes from several places, but the one that I would mention is probably people look at the pastor, and the pastors invariably are, you know, pretty living close to the edge all the time. Yeah. yeah, but make, that, make sure. But, well, in America, though, we are starting to see more and more of these uber wealthy um, religious leaders, or they they fly around in private jets. They, they right. have incredible things, and even I have found myself thinking, "Oh, it's a bit it's a, feels a bit wrong." But that's conditioning, isn't it? You know, as I say, I realise yeah, surely if everyone aspired to have more, to be more, to help more, to give more, it, it becomes a, a an upward circle rather than a downward spiral, you know. But, uh. It's it's very easy to look at some of those uh, uh, American pastors that are doing this, uh, but you don't know you don't know the journey. You don't know whether those things have been given to them. You don't know how much they're giving to the kingdom. You don't know if if they've just given ten million pounds to to uh, get a thousand people out of the sex trade in Bangladesh. Yeah, you, you just don't know those things, do you? No, and um, and. The, what's, the, what's the saying? The more I know, the more I realise I know yeah. nothing. But um, that's right. <laughs> you, you, you always want to learn, yeah. learn more, and, and yeah. dig deeper. Um, 
and I could stay on this one subject for hours, but yeah. can I take us forward to you then? Can. So you have got some peace, I guess. You've felt forgiven. Yeah. You've felt that you're not on your own in, in a spiritual sense, yeah. which I guess led to it in a physical sense. Where does Kevin, the businessman that starts Checker Trade, come from? And, and wow. wh- when and where does that happen? For many, many, many years, I am bouncing along the bottom of life. And what was your um, trade? What were you doing? What were you working at? Um, pretty much working in print. My first job was in the art room of a local newspaper. From there, I worked for my brother Danny for a couple of years in London as a graphic designer. Uh, and then when my dad got seriously ill um, at the age, uh, I was about 19, my mum said, Kev, can you come home? I need help getting your dad back and forth to the hospital. And he fi- finally passed away when I was 20. And at that point, I worked for a lithographic printer in Selsey, um, which is where Checker Trade was, uh, up until the age of 30, um, 34, I think it was. Right. Um, and at that point, my wife and I decided that we wanted to become pastors of a church. And we went in 95, we went on to a six month course to become pastors, learn all the ins and outs of how to do that. And at the end of it, something bizarre happened. Our house was on the market. We were moving to Bournemouth to start a church. We'd been going over there midweek doing meetings and building up people and, um, but a, a prophet went through our ministry school right. and that prophet picked on my wife and I. They never seen this guy before in my <laughs> life, but he said some very personal things about Lisa, which were all spot on. He said some personal things about us as a couple, which were spot on. And then he turned to me and he said, you are not to be sent out. Oh. And I'm going, Oh, phew. Cause I didn't really want to do it. Um, And this is what he said. God has given you the ability to make wealth. And at that point, I thought, oh, you've lost it now, mate. Which you wouldn't think a man of God would say, would you, really, given what we've just... Well, at that point, I had nothing in my pockets. I was a carpet... At that point, I was a carpet cleaner because I'd given up my full-time job to do this course. I was cleaning carpets. I was cleaning toilets. I was cleaning windows. I was selling insurance and working behind a bar. That's what I was doing. Uh, and when he started to tell me that your millions are going to pass through your hands to the Middle East and the Far East, I thought, well, you've lost it now, mate. You've lost me because that's just ridiculous. It's never going to happen. And it has But, but obviously it planted a seed. <laughs> it, it, did it plant a seed? Um, maybe, but it was a very, very tiny seed and it's not a seed I watered. Right. And that's uh, interesting that you use that terminology because do you, do you look back now and think you could have started sooner or did you have to go through oh. more to get to start? And I, when did you start? I mean, what? Well, r- before that point, when, when my first couple of kids started to arrive, um, I started to clean carpets in my spare time. I, I borrowed 250 quid off my mum and I started doing carpets. Uh, and that led me to coming out of my shell a little bit because I was really, really introvert from the experiences of a child. Um, and then I was thinking, well, where can I advertise my carpet cleaning business? 
And I couldn't afford Yellow Pages, couldn't afford Thompson's, and there was nothing else to go in. Local local newspaper was too expensive for me. But because I had skills in the print industry, I went to some people in my church right. and I said, you're a, you're a plumber. Maybe if I do a leaflet, um, we can share the cost of the print. You know, if I can get a builder, an electrician and et cetera on board, we'll share the cost of the print and you, you deliver it around your, your way. You, you right. deliver the, and we'll see what happens. But that leaflet turned into a 32 page book straight away. Wow. Because, because they're ev- in effect contributing towards the everybody cost. wanted to go in it. Brilliant. You know, people's just started to talk. Oh, I've got someone else, Kev, that's interested. And everyone has these little blue books or local books that come through their doors now. I'm pretty sure I was the first in the UK to do anything like that. But I didn't take it any further than Celsi. And then someone copied me. And before I know it, Chichester, Bognor, all the surrounding areas have been done. And I missed the boat. I missed the boat. But that got me into talking to tradesmen now. Um, and understanding, tra- I, I wasn't a tradesman, unless you can call a carpet cleaner a tradesman. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it got me out of my shell a little bit in talking and selling a concept to someone. And then in 1998, a tornado goes through Selsey Bill. Most people think, oh, it's the big hurricane storm of 97. No, it wasn't. It was a one-off. And tornadoes in the UK are very rare, of course. Mm-hmm. But it caused about ten million pounds worth of damage. It, it came down, did about a quarter of a mile. Which is and probably a hundred million damage now, I guess. Oh, Thirty years I later, guess, yeah, a long time ago. Um, and I, I can remember that morning. It didn't affect my house. I was about two hundred and fifty meters away from where it came down. And I walked down the bottom of the street, and what? And it was just like, man, this must be like with the Blitz. Because there was walls down, there was fences everywhere, there was bits of rubble all over the road, and it, it was a mess. Wow. So that that was on uh, the BBC nine o'clock news, ITV ten o'clock news, and over the next few days, white vans just started to appear everywhere, and where people had been victims of the weather, they were now being victims of tradesmen, road tradesmen, road tradesmen. And my, my dad had to retire from the forces after his operation and lost everything. But he did get a job as a trading standards officer. So in my teenage years, he'd come home and say, well, he would give me some stories about what had gone on. And so I had that background. Um, but I started to hear about my locals and how they'd been ripped off. And I thought, hold on, I don't, I don't really understand that. I was never in a position to afford a tradesman in my house, unless it was gas or something that I couldn't yeah, do. Yeah. I'd, I'd do it all myself. So, so it was very rare I'd use the tradesman. But I couldn't understand that if I go into Sainsbury's and walk out with a bottle of wine that I haven't paid for, I'd get arrested. And yet these tradesmen can go into people's homes and they can take their money do a bad job and sometimes not a job at all. And then they can go and do it on the next street. And nothing can be done. And they can go and do it on the next street and get away with it. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's not right. And I thought, well, how can I take my local business directory, the little blue book, and turn that into something that's more robust in as far as protecting the consumer? 
So we're still in print. There's no technology, no internet. No, no, no internet, yeah. no. So I started to do a little bit of research. Uh, when I say research, talking to friends, you know, and it became obvious to me that it's the ladies, and this is way back then, it's 25 years ago, This it was the ladies that always called the trades. And it was the men that picked up and signed the checks. That's what it was 25 years ago. It's not that now. But I thought, okay, so these are, maybe I could come up with a concept of women recommending to other women tradesmen that they'd used. And if you were a tradesman, what can I ask of you? I want your qualifications. I want letters from previous happy customers. Um, And I want to see um, your insurance documents. And there was some very basic things like if you were saying you were a roofer, I'd want to know that you'd been a roofer for four years or five years, something like that, because you don't want a 17-year-old no. taking your roof off. <laughs> you actually have done it before. Yeah. <laughs> if you've done um, Yes, that's right. So that's where the concept came. But it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was almost a whole year. Jeez. It was September. So nine months had gone by and I can remember picking the phone up and I made my first call to someone that was in my local business directory. I said, Bill, Bill Lander, he was a fencer. I've got this idea of something like the local business directory, but making it simpler and and giving it more robustness. uh, And within talking to friends and family, when you were then, when I identified it was the women, I said, well, what do you want? What puts you off? And it became very obvious. They don't like the classified adverts in the back of the newspaper where you got little adverts with guys with screwdrivers and logos. You don't really tell them anything. No. All I want, Kev, is a name and a number. <laughs> and as long as that guy turns up on time, doesn't overcharge me and does it right first time, I'm happy. Yeah. Those three things, that's it. And it's still the same three things today. That's all anybody wants from a tradesman. So we're now 25 years ago. Yeah. Because that's the other thing, you know, you know, when we talked about age, we talked about it, you're 59 years old. Um, People probably think he's had money for ages, but you're still more, you're now more than half of your lived life and you still got no money. No money at all. No money at all. You're still living hand to mouth, week to week. I had, I, I was doing graphic design work freelance. Now we decided we're not going to start a church. What do I do? So quite a few years go by, you know, another three, three or four years go by before the tornado. And I am bouncing along the bottom of life, trying to feed my family, trying to, you know, uh, trying to keep a roof over my head. And at that point, you'll probably be remember when interest rates on mortgages went up to 14%. Yeah, I bought my first house. At how how yeah. could we possibly, you know, my my wages wasn't covering the mortgage, let alone anything else. So I had to do all these additional things. Yeah. So when I, when I, when I started uh, Checker Trade, and it wasn't called Checker Trade, I called it Scout originally. Scout. Yeah. Um. I was doing some freelance graphic design work for a guy in London and I, I idolized him and his wife. And I still think they were, a f- they are a phenomenal couple. Uh, and he was into marketing. Say who they were just it was Diane and Michael Anselm. I haven't spoken to them for a very, very long time now. Um, but, uh, I, I explained the concept to Mike and he says, that's fantastic, Kev. That sounds really good. Can I get involved? So I gave him a percentage of the company. 
Um, and then it became very obvious that until the company had grown, his expertise in marketing really wasn't going to be beneficial, which was fine. And he gave his shares to his wife which, with my blessing. And she, she was and still is today the best tele salesperson I've ever come across. She could just talk tradesmen on any level and get them to have an appointment with me. So she would make the appointments and then I would go and fulfill them. So we built now Scout. So up, and when did and Scout start? What was the, do you remember this, the year? This would have been 1990, uh, late 1998. Okay. So 1998 is when it started. So only 25 years ago. And that's the very seed of the business. Absolutely. Yeah. The original concept was going to be called the phone box. One plumber, one election, one this, one that, one that, and give it to about 10,000 homes. Right. And then that, I thought, no, no, no. What does the phone box mean? I want people to know that we've scouted around and found the better trace. We called it Scout. So I'd been running that for three or four months before Diane got, Diana Anselm got involved. Uh, and then it really did start to move forward because she was really good on the phone. Um, and we built several directories, no internet. We built several directories up and around the Cobham area, Kingston, Epsom, Yule, around that area. So these were just now printed products going through people's doors via Royal Mail. And are you charging the tradesmen at this yeah. point? And, and that's like a, almost like an advertising levy to get them in the magazine. Correct. Yeah. And we would have a limited amount of. <clears throat> of vetting. So how did it then transition into what was it straight from Scout to Checker Trade or no. what was the journey? The Scout Association started to write to me via barristers. Oh, You're okay. passing off. Oh. So I changed it to Scout it out. That didn't stop the Scout Association and their barristers. <laughs> You're still passing off. Oh. So I changed it to the Trade Register. Um, and then uh, I mean, some of this coincides with what I'm going to say in a minute or two, but the trade register, who knows that you can't call a company with the word register in it unless you've got home office approval. <laughs> Maybe it's changed now, but I had a trading standards knocking at my door. Mr. Byrne, the trade register. Yeah. You can't have the word register in your... Well, I didn't know. But in that. a way, it's a compliment <laughs> because if if you've got companies like the Scouts and and the government knocking on your door, it means your head's coming above the parapet. Yeah. You're starting to be known, yeah. and 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 so it's not you're not just a home business anymore, sure. sort of. So we're going to have to change it again to another name, and that will be the fourth change. How are the customers? How are the tradesmen going to react to that? Anyway, uh, whilst all of that little end bit was happening, and just so I, I said to say, you're building this at your shed. At this point, yeah, oh. I'm, I'm at the bottom of my garden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm traveling up to Kingston upon Thames. Um, so South Coast to South London. Yeah, and they lived in a manor house, and they dedicated a room which Diana was working from, and we had a couple of other people now working with us. Um, but what happened at that point? Um, I st I had this idea. I'm thinking, well, I'm asking all all of these trades for letters from happy customers. Wouldn't it be fantastic if I could get an ongoing report, constant reviews of what customers thought about tradesmen? I wonder if the internet could do that for me. 
And at that point, our di- some of our directories, we would limit it to the, the directories weren't full, but we would say as a builder, you would only have four builders in there. So if a fifth builder wanted to come on board, we'd have to say no. And they say, well, can I? Yeah. So they, and we had a really, really basic website. It was literally a JPEG of the directory. And the tradesman was saying, well, if I can't go into your directory, can I go on your website? I I think, oh, okay. I'm going to have to look at that because that could be another source of income. If I can put more people on my, I'm keeping my word about the directories. But maybe on the website, it could be unlimited builders. And where, where, where are we now, time-wise, timeline-wise? This is probably around about beginning of 2000. Right, okay. Roughly. Are you making money now? Or? Oh, no. No, still, still no, bubbling along. I didn't make any money yeah. for seven years. Okay. No, I'm not making any money. I'm still cleaning carpets, doing graphic design work, selling insurance, working behind bars. All right. And trying to fulfill three appointments a day, traveling up to London every day. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm thinking this would be great if I could get that continuous. So what do you do when you get an idea? You go to the internet, uh, Google, I don't think existed back then. And certainly there wasn't TripAdvisor and there wasn't anything on there at all that I could copy. No yeah. one was doing reviews that I could find. If anybody proves me wrong, I'll stop saying it. <laughs> but I reckon I was the first in the world to do online reviews. So with that idea, I went to Diana and Michael and I said, I've got a great idea. And they said, what is it? I want to monitor trades going forward. And Kev, no one will ever want to be monitored. I'm not going to support that. And this is where the, the divergence came. Yeah. So I'm going, oh, no. But... I just knew it was the right way. So I went to see um, actually the owner of Celsi Press that I worked for for 12 years, the, the lithographic printers. He was a Christian man. He he'd created a couple of uh, churches, started a couple of churches in his time. He was retired by that point. His name was John Tyler, uh, respected him immensely. I went to see him and I said, John, Mr. Tyler, this is the situation I found myself in. And he said, okay, Kev, um, you need to give them your business and you need to start again. What? So you walk away. He said, Kev, I'm telling you the hassle you will go through doing anything other than what I'm telling you will not be worth the pain. Just give them your business and start again. So that's what I did. Because I guess if you even took any money for it, you'd have signed up into an anti-compete and da 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 da. da. Yeah. So I gave that them took, the that business. That took some kahunas. At that point. It, it, it was difficult because I hadn't I hadn't been any earning any money from it, but I've been working on it massively. You know, the typical thing is you wake up in the morning, you start work, uh, and last thing at night you turn off your 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 Mac or you you, you turn off your four eight six and go to bed. and that was life thanks for listening please come back in a fortnight for an amazingly emotional part two the story behind the great man who created Checker Trade